The goal is to give all Americans a voice in their government and ensure that they know exactly how we're spending their money and can hold us accountable for the results. Life's about film stars and less about mothers. It's all about fast cars and cussing each other. But it doesn't matter because I'm packing plastic. And that's what makes my life so fantastic. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Laura Conaway in New York City. And I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. Today is Monday, the 20th of April. And today, NPR's Mike Pesca crawls over the cube wall into Planet Money's land. He's going to review Gimme My Money Back, your guide to beating the financial crisis by CNN's business correspondent, Ali Velshi. <laughs> and I have not heard it yet, but Jonathan Kern, our editor, reviewed the review. <laughs> he uh-huh. calls it funny animated two thumbs up Woo! i have to tell you that pesca gives the book less than two thumbs up though okay but first our planet money indicator it's 1600 1600 if that sounds like a job cuts number you are right and if you guessed general motors right again gm is cutting 1600 positions in the u.s this week they're trying to find a way to restructure before the deadline set by the obama administration of june 1st We're going to have more on the situation at GM later in the podcast. First, we have a lovely appetizer for you. Do we ever? We are going to talk about my new favorite subject, accounting. Although, David, I will promise you that whatever else I set out to do with my life, accounting, -uh. nuh-uh. I have to say, I find it totally fascinating. I like spreadsheets. I don't know why. Numbers in boxes, it just makes me happy. Okay. Sometimes, though, it is hard to know whether to believe those numbers, and and that may be my problem with accounting. I don't know. Our accounting lesson today, like so many lately, comes courtesy of the U.S. government. The Obama administration wants to convert the bailout money it has loaned banks into what are known as common shares. So common shares, that's like the kind of stock that you and I could actually buy in a company. You get to vote your owner in the company. Yeah. And this approach to the TARP bailout, folks, it is not exactly novel, despite being on the front page of the newspapers. Our old friend Simon Johnson of Baseline Scenario spelled it out. It's not a new thing. You have seen it before. It is a version of Groundhog Day. Uh, they did it specifically for Citigroup uh, in, in late uh, February. And what uh, the, the, the mechanism is that people, banks receive their TARP uh, funds in so-called preferred stock, which is a in, in this version, a non-voting stock that's kind of like debt. So you've got to pay that before you pay shareholders. Um, and they want to convert this preferred stock um, into common stock. So make the government's uh, shareholding just like other uh, common common stock in the company. Right. So this whole thing, David, with the preferred stock going into common stock, not only did we see a version of this with Citigroup, it's also always been part of the second version of TARP. And I guess on the upside, you could say that the government does indeed get to vote on bank affairs if they have common stock, just like anybody else who has common stock. Right. And that's what what makes this news start to matter, because at first glance, you you might think, oh, what's the big deal? You're going from one kind of stock to another. Basically, this is just about accounting. This is moving some of your liabilities from being a debt-type instrument uh, in which you've got to pay a a fixed uh, dividend um, to being um, an uh, equity-type participation in in, in the company. Um, It does help the bank a little bit uh, in terms of cash flow. You don't have to pay out these dividends. 
Um, but it doesn't really address the underlying capital deficiency, if there is one. And we'll, we'll see the results of the stress test, of course, uh, fa- fairly soon. Uh, and it does raise the rather awkward question of, of what level of ownership the government will get from such a transaction. Yeah, Laura, because in some cases, you know, depending on how much they do of this, the government would be the single biggest shareholder of some of these companies, as, as it is right now with Citigroup. Yeah, and it makes you start wondering again about the word that the Obama administration doesn't want to say, nationalization. Simon Johnson, he's happy to say nationalization. He says it quite a lot. And he calls today's news a, I'm just going to quote, fairly ineffective, not advisable form of nationalization. So why should we care? Well, um, we shouldn't care too much. It's it's an accounting manipulation, if you like. It doesn't add up too much. I think we should care more because it's a signal of where the government is and its thinking. It, it tells you a couple of things. First, the fact they're floating this means they anticipate that uh, some of the stress tests will say the banks need more capital, uh, at least on paper. Um, and they, they of course, uh, are aware that they don't have a lot of capital, as in cash money, they can put into the banks. They're down to their last $135 billion or so. Congress has said there's no more money uh, immediately forthcoming uh, for that purpose. So you don't have much cash. You think the banks need capital. You're not willing to take more dramatic steps with regard to recapitalizing uh, banks or taking over banks and, and winding them down. Um, if, if that's what's called for, depending on the results of the stress test. So this is kind of a fudge. This is a big uh, financial fudge. Now, Simon Johnson says that in this one, there aren't really any great big winners or losers. The banks get a little more time maybe to look better than broke. But let's say you're a bank and you got $10 billion in the preferred shares and you switch that over into the common shares. It's still the same $10 billion. Right. And so the taxpayers, I mean, the benefit for the government here is they're not shelling out more money. But the downside is that they are taking on more risk because with the old preferred shares, they were at the front of the line to get paid if the banks failed. But now that you have common stock, you're further down in the pecking order. On our blog today, npr.org slash money, you can find a cool post about this from Kathleen Brooks. She's hanging out with us lately from Columbia University. We haven't talked about the auto industry in a little while here on the podcast, but that June 1st deadline for GM is approaching, so we figured it was a good time to check in. So General Motors has until June 1st to come up with a restructuring plan that the Obama administration likes, or else it'll lose its chance to get more money from the government. And so far, the company has received $13.4 billion in loans. The loan figures here sometimes get so amazing to me. GM is doing everything it can right now to avoid bankruptcy because naturally it feels like if it declares bankruptcy and waves the right flag, then that would severely damage its chances to ever recover as a viable company. The Obama administration has already scrapped one restructuring plan a while back from GM. GM has been trying to reach a deal with United Auto Workers on concessions. That hasn't happened. So its ability to stay out of bankruptcy is looking far less likely. So we wanted to get a sense for what a possible GM bankruptcy would mean. So Kathleen Brooks here at Planet Money called up Steve Jakubowski, a bankruptcy lawyer at Coleman Law Firm in Chicago. And we talked to Steve back in November when Rick Wagoner was still the CEO of GM. And Jakubowski told us that he thought the best use of government money back then would be to facilitate an orderly bankruptcy. He was for bankruptcy. So this time we asked him just what that would look like. They are right now contemplating taking GM and and um, splitting it into effectively two entities, one entity that they hope to effectively get out of bankruptcy within, they say, a couple of weeks, which is astonishing, but that's what they're saying. 
uh, those would be what they call the good assets, which are, for example, the Chinese subsidiary, the Chevy assets, the uh, Buick assets, um, Cadillac assets, and leaving behind assets that effectively they've written off, they plan to write off according to their latest filing. They basically have no, there is no future for Hummer, Saab, or Saturn. So that process uh, will be, in my view, contested. Apparently the bondholders are not intending to take this deal. And I would anticipate that in a contested bankruptcy case, it would take uh, upwards of a couple of years. In an uncontested bankruptcy case, uh, they might be able to get it done with about, within about nine months to a year. What are the benefits of splitting it into you know, good and bad parts? I mean, it's quite well, I, reminiscent of the Treasury's plan to, to help the banks out. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to work. Um, this is my own personal uh, opinion, obviously. And, but I think it's a, it's a great negotiating tactic because they'll probably file this case in Delaware, which has the most debtor-friendly judges uh, you'll find. Uh, and, um, and so... Why don't you think it would work, won't work? I don't think it'll work because I don't think the bankruptcy judge, even the most favorable bankruptcy judge in the country, would um, uh, allow all of the good assets of the company, which effectively are all of its assets, or they're effectively all of its operating assets, to be sold in a transaction that doesn't yield any cash, that effectively is only going to yield stock, is the crown jewel of the company, has it represents probably $50 billion, $50 billion, $30 billion in value, of asset value, uh, to be sold in such a short period of time, and, there's, and leaving nothing left for creditors. It is effectively a plan of reorganization, and, um, and most courts are, and judges are very apprehensive of uh, allowing that kind of a sale to take place absent a, a plan of reorganization, which has all of the protections that Congress has put in uh, for all creditors in connection with effectively a voting and democratic process. So in, uh, you know, restructured GM, this debtor in possession financing role, I assume, would be the government. The government, it's interesting because GM has been around for 101 years now. Their balance sheet until recently was remarkably clean, and which means that uh, unlike most companies that go into bankruptcy, the assets of this company are not highly leveraged. In other words, there's not a lot of secure debt on the assets of GM. They own most of their land. They own most of their manufacturing facilities. They pretty much own everything <laughs> that they have. So there's a lot of equity value there for the government to um, lend against in which it can be protected. So the government can be protected in this scenario? The government is very protected. It's amazingly protected. In other words, it has, it's like a mortgage. It has a first mortgage on GM. Okay. It's like a bank mm-hmm. has a first mortgage on your house, and, 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 when they, and if the house goes in, under sale, they get paid out first. That same thing happens in GM for the government. That $13 billion is the first money off the top. They share a little bit with, with uh, $4.5 billion of other secured debt, which is basically secured by receivables and inventory. So that, well, you know, the, as the receivables and inventory kind of kind of roll out of GM, the secured debt gets paid out, and all of the other hard assets of the company are pledged to the United States of America. 
uh, I think what the government is trying to do is, is force people into a situation where they'll say, look, we'll fund the dip, they call it, the loan in bankruptcy to keep the company operating so it can pay its bills and keep operating and get itself to a position where it can effectuate a plan of reorganization. What to me is shocking here from a bankruptcy lawyer's perspective is the amount of pressure this lender, the United States of America, is putting on this debtor to force a plan through that it wants to have done and throw out management um, and, and dictate the terms of a plan of reorganization. If any other lender in this, company, in this country were to take the actions that the U.S. is doing, I can assure you that any bankruptcy lawyer worth his salt would bring an action against the United States of America, that lender, for lender liability, for basically taking control of the debtor to the detriment of the other creditors. Yeah, so the end, the end of March, we were hearing that it might cost 20 to $30 billion to bail out GM. What are these costs? Why does it cost so much to, uh, you know, to get, get rid of the bad assets in GM? Well, I think what they're talking about is what's the cost, of, what's the cost that it takes to cover the claims? And, and what are the claims of GM? See, you've got, you've got unsecured debt. The debt the bondholders are $29 million. But there's a lot of other stuff there. There's, there's, um, in, in 2000, at the end of 2007, GM cut a deal with the unions that basically took the retiree medical benefits off the balance sheet and, and, and gave control of that and responsibility of that to the union. Yes. Those are called mm-hmm. the so-called the VIBA. VIBA claims, the Voluntary Employment Employee Benefit Association. They should put it in this association that is uh, exempt from creditors, but the, from other creditors of GM or other creditors of the individuals, and, and those are to pay the retiree benefits for medical. The problem is that what they thought was going to be a 50 or 40 or 50 billion, $40 billion fund that would grow over time to cover the payouts over time has diminished so that right now it's about $14 billion, and, and the government is insisting that, that as a condition to their effectively funding a, a reorganization or a consenting to a reorganization, that the VIBA claimants, the retirees and their medical claimants, uh, agree to accept equity in exchange for their obligations. So that's about that obligation. I think is about twenty six billion dollars. Okay, so you're saying that the costs involved are paying back the unsecured debt and the uh, and, and the VIBA. So are there, are there any then, other costs? And, and then in Delphi is in bankruptcy, and they've been trying to get out of bankruptcy. And GM agreed to fund their bankruptcy. That liability is now twelve point three billion dollars. And finally, there's their there's their unfunded pension plans. The retirees. Uh, have rights to a pension plan. We all know that that's one of the major legacy costs. In the case of bankruptcy, you know, are, will the taxpayer be just be saddled with these, you know, GM's bad assets? And what, what if they can't sell them as quickly as, well, as, from, they're, as they're planning it? As they're planning from uh, from the government's perspective, there's there's I think relatively little exposure. At the end of the day, the debt the secured debt of the United States of America is going to get paid off, whether from the sale, whether it's going to be assumed by the good GM, or whether it's going to um, somehow, it's in a, going to be in a position where it's going to get paid off. Um, but from the taxpayer's perspective, um, I think they're completely secure, except for the unfunded pension liabilities. Hey, David. Yeah. It sure sounds like Steve Jakubowski thinks the Obama administration has the whip hand on this. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting actually to go through all the money that the government has put out there and see, you know, where is it they expect they might actually lose money? Because when you start to look at each of these, 
some of these things individually, you say, wow, that's that, look, that looks pretty good. Other people could lose money, but they're first in line to get paid. Well, that's some of Simon Johnson's point about the thing with the banks, where they want to switch from the preferred shares to the common shares. It does mean taking on more risk, and, and he thinks in that way it's maybe a little bit of a bow to the banks. Right. You can read more from Steve Jakubowski at the Bankruptcy Litigation Blog. That is a name, isn't it? And we will link to it from our blog, npr.org slash money. Now it is time for Dessert, a patented Planet Money book review from NPR's own Mike Pesca. I think that might be patent pending. Patent pending. Sorry. Thank you. Today's book was written by CNN's chief business correspondent, Ali Velshi. It's called Gimme My Money Back, Your Guide to Beating the Financial Markets. Ali Velshi, CNN's glabrous imp of fiduciary acumen, has written a guide to dealing with the financial markets. No, not dealing with the financial markets, not even understanding the financial markets, but actually beating the financial markets. Give Me My Money Back, Your Guide to Beating the Financial Markets, is the name of his slim book published by Sterling and Ross. It was also the name of the CNN special that Velshi used as, uh, we're not going to say infomercial, how about newsvertisement? Whether you're an avid investor or you simply want to take a closer look at your 401k or your IRAs, Doug Flynn is a certified financial planner. He's the founder of Flynn Zito Capital Management, and he actually worked with me on the portfolios that you can find in the book. Give me my money back. Uh, before you assemble a portfolio, Gene Sahadi touched on this a little while ago, you have to understand your risk tolerance. Now, there's, a, there's a questionnaire in the book. If somebody were to come to you... Here's how TV networks think. Ali Velshi will clothe him in vests. That says he knows how to invest. Genius! The tone and topics discussed in this book are suited for the barely financially literate. He explains inflation by writing, For example, if Rip Van Winkle had put $100 under his mattress in 1990 and gone to sleep until 2009, he'd awaken to discover the $100 was still there, untouched. But he'd soon be horrified at how much less his money bought today than it had in 1990. So why even the hoary Rip Van Winkle reference? For the same reason, he begins a section on taxed advantage saving plans with the following words. Do you have a job? If so, good. On most every page of Give Me My Money Back, the phrase rush job shines through. Velshi told the New York Observer that he had his first meeting with a publisher late last year, and 40 days later, the book was bound and ready to ship. Ali Velshi, entrepreneur, gets high marks for meeting a market need. Ali Velshi, explainer of complex economic principles, is a lot less successful. What you want from a book called Gimme My Money Back is one of two things. Either a description of specific trading strategies to deal with this particular market moment, which is very tough to deliver, or a prescription for societal changes to guard against a repeat of this meltdown. Instead, Velshi delivers an opening chapter that addresses the market meltdown of 08 in the manner of a U.S. News & World Report article that you probably saw and skipped. The next seven chapters are standard issue how to invest primer. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not going to get anyone their money back. While I think smart investing is better than dumb investing, it's better than no investing, I reject a few of Velshi's premises here. He writes on the very first page, let me find it, I know that too many of you are struggling to make ends meet, but there is a way out. It's investing. No, it's not. It's probably paying down your debt and living well within your means. 
Velshi's bland pronouncements are so unremarkable, things like stocks let you own part of a company, that the reader might not realize that not all the words in the book are not simple truisms. In fact, some aren't even true. For instance, he demonstrates the concept of price-to-earnings ratio with GE stock. He calls it cheap. Let me quote. By historical standards, the company stock was substantially undervalued. Viewed rationally, it could be considered a buying opportunity, but the market is a herd animal. Saying GE stock fell only because of market psychology totally ignores the underlying problems with GE, GE Capital, and in fact, GE stock has fallen by 50% since the time Velshi called it undervalued. One bad stock pick doesn't make this a bad book. The cliches which frequently begin each chapter, quote, you wouldn't build a house without a blueprint, that doesn't make it a bad book. The charts from Morningstar, which are so small and shaded so poorly that they strain both your eyes and your patience, they don't make it a bad book. But you know what? Overall, it's a bad book. The publisher sent it to me without my asking, but on behalf of anyone who paid the twelve ninety five cover price, give me my money back. Lame and obvious, yes, but twice as clever and just as useful as anything you'll find in the book of the same name. <laughs> Laura, Pesca, yes. if, if I ever write a book, I'm making sure my publisher never sends it to you. <laughs> I know what glabrous means, you glabrous imp of fiduciary acumen. Uh, maybe you can post a definition on the blog. All right, that is going to do it for us here today on Planet Money. We'll be back podcasting on Wednesday. Make sure to check out the blog tomorrow. We'll have a video from Adam and Alex's live appearance at KCRW. You can find that and more on our blog, npr.org slash money. And, folks, we have a new call-in line. I'm going to tell you the number in just a second. Woo-hoo. That's right. You guys start looking for a pencil. This call-in line is for you to call in with comments, objections, tips, whatever's on your mind. Um, Unless you say otherwise, we will consider it fair game to use on a podcast or a radio segment or on the blog. Here's the number, 202-408-1271. We're going to do that again. 202-408-1271. Adam Davidson calls it the least alphabetically inclined phone number he's ever seen. The first person to make up a little word to go along with that wins a prize of some sort to be determined later. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. 